Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, the podcast where we cook up a delicious blend of cybersecurity, privacy, and data protection topics to serve you a hearty bowl of insights. Whether you like your gumbo spicy with a dash of encryption or prefer a milder flavor with a side of compliance, we've got you covered. So grab a spoon, sit back, and let's dive into the pot of data protection gumbo. Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, and we have an amazing show lined up for you today with a Gumbo alumni, right? He's been on for a few times and we can't get enough of Steve Umbahawker's advice and his insight and all of the different types of recommendations that he provides around storage. And so just a little information on Steve. He has worked in the enterprise software and storage industry for over 20 years, holding engineering leadership roles at different companies from Citrix Systems, Symantec, also Veritas. And he holds over 20 patents in the areas of storage systems, technology, SDS, and also cloud computing. So, Steve, welcome to Data Protection Gumbo again. Hey, thanks for having me on, Demetrius. All right. So I want to pick your brain and I brought you on because a conversation around object storage, let's say versus tape backup and kind of the showdown of the different ways and methods of storing data these days and different tiers of data. And obviously you start getting into conversations around performance and tiers and the cost of that and latency and just all of these different aspects of storing data. Now, I want to understand from you overall from your experience, but you know what, before we do that, what's OS Nexus? Oh, sure. Yeah. So OS Nexus, we're a software defined storage manufacturer. So we make a platform that will bare metal install on a server or run in a virtual machine to turn that into a storage system. But kind of what makes our platform Unique is that we can link all the systems together so you can manage them all as one. So when you start deploying systems in London, Seattle, uh, it can be difficult when you have different silos of, of different locations uh, that make up your company or organization. You want to be able to link that together so that your cost of monitoring and managing it and securing it all is lower. So that's what the grid tech really does. So it's it's been really popular with cloud service providers and, and, and larger organizations, yeah. Let's maybe start out the gate with cost, because it's a really important topic right now. There are a lot of tech layoffs happening. So most large and even medium sized organizations are laying off because they're cutting and they're trying to save money and they're cutting costs. And let's say I've seen anywhere from 3% of the workforce at different companies being laid off up to 5 and 10%. And this may have been due to a lot of rapid growth due to the pandemic. But when we talk about cost and and storage, what what are a few things that you hear in different conversations that you have when you are talking about, let's say, object storage versus tape storage? Well, tape's going to be around for a long time just because there's nothing cheaper than storing data on a tape and then just putting it in a vault or something because there's nothing spinning, you're not paying for any power, but tape has a lot of disadvantages, especially if you need access to the data to do stuff with it. Like if you're a university and you produce a bunch of data doing some research, 
you want to start writing, you know, AI ML type uh, algorithms to go process it and, and learn something from the data. Like if you go collect a bunch of data from these like laser tunneling microscopes and you want to glean some new thing out of it, you could you can use, uh, you know, the latest AI techniques to, to go and figure out, hey, what's, you know, what's causing this particular behavior across uh, all these samples or something. But um, if it's on tape, you can't really do much with it. It's just, you know, it's <laughs> you can't access it until you reload it off the tape. So a lot of companies want the data live. And in order to keep huge amounts of data at the ready, uh, object storage has become the, the standard. And, and all of the backup products today support an object storage backend uh, so that they can rapidly recover data and, and bring it back to users. But how do you kind of blend the two together? How do you make it so that you can kind of get stuff onto cold storage and how do you and, and at the same time uh, be able to retrieve it quickly? And what, what we're seeing out there is, is companies blending the two together where you can back up the object storage, but then they cool that down to tape storage. And that's effectively what you're getting when you when you put something into like Amazon's Glacier. So you upload it as object, but then you tag the data saying, I want this to be you know, brought down to a lower cost tier. They're throwing that on tape, right? Maybe the metadata is on spinning disk or SSD, but uh, that's eventually going on to tape, uh, and which is why it takes so long to recover data from some of those storage tiers. But those are kind of some of the trends out there. A lot of, a lot of organizations uh, uh, adopting cloud object storage as their backup target, but then to keep costs in check, uh, they're putting it into these lower cost tiers. Okay, maybe give us a one-on-one on the different tiers and different types of storage because we mentioned object storage. Obviously, there there's block file and block storage, and then you also have tape storage, and then you have cold, hot, warm. Like, give us a one-on-one really quick. Yeah, you bet. So pretty much all storage systems that you can buy uh, for businesses and, and cloud storage included kind of fit into three categories, file, block, and object. And the the block storage, you basically get a, it's, it's like a hard drive. You have to format it before you can use it. And there's ways to deliver block storage across the network using protocols like Fiber Channel and iSCSI and NVMe over Fabrics. But you have to format the device and put a file system on it. So on Windows, we format things with NTFS or ReFS. On, on Mac, there's another file system. But anyways, that's block storage. That was really popular in sort of the beginning of the storage industry because you you would kind of had, you know, banks would put all of their stuff inside of one server and a drive would go bad and, you know, they, they would have huge outages. You know, you'd go to the teller line or whatever and they say, oh, the computers are down or whatever. So the first first generation of storage virtualization was for block storage and to separate that into a separate box. That's where EMC really got a lot of their growth back in the early 2000s, late 90s, was delivering block storage. And then companies were like, well, this block storage, you can't share it. I need like all the computers to share it. How do we get it so that, you know, people can share files and NAS became really popular. So kind of the industry evolved from block to file and NetApp was the big leader in pushing file storage. But once the internet age kind of came along and everybody's using, you know, needing access to files, not on a local network, but across the internet, you know, there you, you play when anytime you're playing a mobile game and it saves your settings, it's using object storage on the back end to go push that into the cloud. You're not going to 
those games can't don't want to save their stuff local. They want to be able to put it in the cloud. So if your phone dies, you can go and pick up where you left off. And that kind of not just goes for games, but everything. You know, it's just you want it uh, out in the cloud. If you want to have some protocol to grab the data from the cloud, you're generally using HTTPS or you're using S3 to go and grab that stuff. So I guess that's what Netflix is using. So if you like any of these streaming platforms, too, if you're watching a movie and you happen to just cut the TV off yeah. in the middle and, oh, wow, look, it started exactly where I, uh, I left off. So that's object storage that's being used. That's all object storage. And in fact, those those systems that you where you're streaming from, uh, you know, Netflix, like you mentioned, or HBO, um, those object stores, there's a category there that they call content delivery networks, mm. because it also wants to, to direct you to the right object store to grab from because, you know, based on out, location, out in, out in, yeah, in proximity. you're in yeah. you're in the. Uh, southeast, you know, they want to make sure that you get to a data center that's local, low latency. I'm in the Northwest. It's got to get to a Northwest data center. Otherwise, we're going to see, you know, the frame rates drop and all that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty neat. And yeah, object storage uh, got, you know, really popularized by AWS. They really invented the S3 protocol. There were standards bodies that were already producing object protocol specs, but Amazon, you know, ran with that ball so fast that now their their uh, S three protocol is now the, the sort of the global default standard for object. So yeah, file block and object, and they really kind of evolved uh, in the order of block, file, then object, and all three are being used heavily today because they all have their advantages. And object, just because the way that these systems are designed in clusters that scale out. Scale out means that you can keep throwing more and more servers and storage at it. That's just made it so that it can keep up with the capacity demands of backups because backups are going from petabytes to tens of petabytes and beyond. And 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 you just can't do that with the old school block and file storage. Yeah. And I am enjoying this conversation because you, you rattled off a lot of things and fireworks were going off in my brain. <laughs> ask him this question, though. Ask him that question. But, you know, I thought about RTO and RPO, and then we talked a little bit about cost and maybe give us some information around RTO, RPO, like the different uh, recovery time objectives and and recovery point objectives and how cost is associated and affiliated with how fast you need to have that data back recoverable in your environment and also how often you're going to take those backups just in case you need to recover that data. Yeah, so RTO, R- RPO, the the recovery time objectives. This is all. This is all super critical things for every company to be thinking about uh, when uh, when they are considering. Okay, what happens if I have an outage in this location? What happens if I have an outage in that location? What happens if we lose this system? And as an example, let's say there was a fire and it, and it destroyed some storage system that you had in a particular data center. You want to know uh, how often are you backing that up? Maybe you've got um, it remote replicating to another data center. And so you've got a time gap of a couple of minutes and you've got a whole thing set up where you can do a site failover. And maybe you've got, again, a time gap of a couple of minutes. That's a real ideal scenario because you've got a complete copy uh, in another uh, site, and then you've got a whole failover procedure where you can just bring the business back online, and, and nobody, almost, 
nobody's really going to notice uh, much much of an outage in most cases for that. Other cases, companies aren't thinking far enough ahead, and they're like, "Well, I did a t- I did a backup of this, but it actually went to the cloud, and then it's on Glacier storage, and it's going to take me a week to recover that." And so, you know, just because you got cloud storage doesn't mean it's a wand that solves everything. You still need to think about that RPO and, you know, the recovery time objective. How long does does it take to actually pull the data back so you can get the business back up and running? So that's a really, really good point, Demetrius. And, and, uh, And that's why you want to blend. I think so many companies are really going after a hybrid cloud strategy where they'll get like one of these large Veritas appliances and do their backups, be able to recover very quickly from that local appliance, but then combine that with a cloud strategy where then they replicate the data from their backup appliance up into the cloud at the same time. So you, then you've got, hey, I've got recovery very quickly uh, from an appliance, and then I've got recovery a bit slower. If I had like like my site outage plus my backup system outage, super rare. Uh, but then you've you've always got that fallback to that third copy. Mm, okay, yeah, all great points. And obviously, the the main conversation today is as you are pulling data into your environment and you're storing that data, regardless of where it is. Yeah, you have to make sure it is secure, right? So, yeah. security, security, security is the name of the game today. And one thing that everyone knows, it's a big R word that we are all using nowadays called ransomware that is out there. And it is literally wreaking havoc on individuals, right? Small organizations, medium, large hospitals, police offices, local governments. I mean, it is everywhere. And so when we're talking storage, and we're talking keeping that data within that storage secure. What are some of the aspects or different methods or features and functionalities that a CISO, right, should be having with the board of directors to make sure that they are, number one, able to recover from things like ransomware? The big movement with object storage is to ensure that uh, immutability is turned on. So when you, when you create a bucket in an object store, that's sort of like a file folder with file storage. You can throw files in there and then they're referred to as objects rather than files. But when you upload things, you can put it into a bucket that's tagged with a, uh, a mutability policy on it that basically says, hey, after this object's been uploaded, nobody can change it. Um, they can't delete it. Uh, they can't append to it. It's just as is. And and that's worm, yeah, right? Yeah, and, it, and it's usually on a file system. They will refer to it as write once, read many, exactly, worm. Uh, and that's kind of interchangeably used with the, with the term immutability now as, as well. Yeah, so immutability is sort of like the first line of defense. You want your backups going to immutable storage. And sometimes and, and frequently you'll set the immutability policy so that it'll freeze it for a certain amount of time. So you might be like, okay, you can't delete it. You can't modify it for like two years. And then after that, we can retire it and have it just delete the file um, or, you know, change the policy. Or sometimes maybe you just need to keep it forever. And so the immutability might be, you know, infinite. Uh, but yeah, that immutability is sort of the first phase because the way the ransomware attacks work is they're changing the data. They go to the object or file and then encrypt it 
and then you know charge a ransom for that encryption key so you can get your data back. So the first, if they can't encrypt the files, they can't take possession of your data. So that, that immutability is sort of the first phase. The, the next thing that we're seeing is uh, basically setting up what are called honeypots. You, you go and you put some files and objects out into the data store and monitor those. And these are basically when somebody goes and attacks and starts to encrypt things, whether it's files or objects, uh, you can say, hey, that was my file. That should have never been encrypted or, or touched ever. It should have been uh, never modified. And, and that can let you kind of trigger alarm bells and then alert the IT staff, hey, somebody's attacking some things here that shouldn't, that are, things are being modified that should never be modified. And, and it can be an early warning system. One of the things about object storage as well is that it, it, it doesn't let you modify things. It's, it's sort of like a file system. One of the things you can do with a file, obviously, is that you can create it, but you can change it like a database file. You can, you know, add more and more entries into it. But one of the tenets of object storage is there's no modify. You can create it and upload it. You can download it. Um, but when you try to change it, what it does is it makes a new copy of it. And that's called object versioning. And so it will put a new version of the object in there uh, and keep the old one. And, uh, and so that's, you know, if you've got versioning enabled, locking enabled, uh, it'll keep kind of a series of the old and the new. Okay. And are, are you still following tape? the tape advancements that are happening? Not very well. The latest with LTO and, and stuff like that. I mean, there's the last I, I, I was really reading about was I'm a bit out of date. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember where we are with LTO. I think it's eight or nine. Sure. Yeah. Where we are with, with LTO. And I've, I've read some pretty cool things where you can do like locking and Worm, well, worm setting up tape to be worm is also kind of an old old thing that's happening as well. I also read about, and this is this is a few years old too, is that there is a method to stop the robot or block the robot if it detected some type of malicious activity where someone was trying to hack the tape library. Yeah, it could stop the robot arm from moving to go grab a tape to mount it, etc. I'm just bringing this up because I just wanted to see if you were still following some of the some of the tape technology so you can give us some information on that. But that's okay. That's fine. I'm but pretty rusty there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a little rusty too because un unless that's your business, right, to know, then you're going to you're going to follow like everything within there and, and within that particular trend. And so speaking of trends, wh where are you seeing the object storage space headed? Yeah, well, one of the things that we've been working with Seagate on over the last year is a object store that has two layers of erasure coding. So when you, uh, the way that these object stores are designed so that your, your data is always available. What's erasure coding for the gumbo listeners who may have no idea about what erasure coding is. Yes, yeah, let's go over that. So real real quickly, uh, for those that are familiar with like RAID technology that would protect disks, erasure coding's pretty much the same thing. There's these guys, uh, Reed and Solomon, that were at MIT that came up with these algorithms for ch you know computing checksums. And basically, when you lose a chunk of data, the checksum can help you rebuild that piece of data. And so you can have more or less checksums. So you could say for every eight pieces of data, I'll have four checksums. And that means that out of the 12 pieces, you could lose any four and completely rebuild all the data. 
But now you can imagine, well, instead of eight, you, could, you can imagine a separate server. Every time you break stuff up into 12 chunks, you could have 12 servers. Well, now you could lose any four of those servers. And that's kind of a simplistic way, uh, of, well, not simplistic way, but uh, uh, it in a nutshell. You know, the whole thing with erasure coding is instead of just distributing the data across a group of disks, you're just distributing across a cluster of servers using the same kind of Reed-Solomon algorithm. And that way, you know, you can go into the data center and turn a whole rack of, of equipment off and there's no downtime to the cluster because you're striping the data across the racks or maybe doing that and striping the data across data centers so entire sites can go out. But yeah, it's really cool technology. I can't believe you remembered all of that. Reed and Solomon and Chunks and Hash. You, you <laughs> yeah. didn't say Hash. Is, is there any hashing involved? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, the, 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 the math of the uh, Reed-Solomon algorithm uh, gets, gets pretty deep. Uh, I, I studied math at the University of Washington, so I, I, get, I, I nerd out with that stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and we, we don't have to get into it. But you, 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 were, you were headed down the path of maybe the partnership with Seagate and some of the cool things that you're doing with Seagate. Yeah. So, so that example of like you got the 12 servers, you could lose a couple of them and, and it keeps on running. Well, the thing that most often happens is not that you get a whole server out, but you just get a bad drive. And when you get a bad drive, you've got to then rebuild uh, that the data or just redistribute what it had across the rest of the cluster. And you've got enough of those coding chunks to do that, but you end up using all this network traffic. You know, the network is the computer at that point. And so the bad drive goes out and it's a 20 terabyte. You've got to redistribute 20 terabytes of data across this network. Nobody likes that because they're trying to use it for a production workload, you know, delivering Netflix to, to the user. And now it's, it's busy doing other stuff. So what all the cloud providers do is they protect it two layers. So they put, they put armor down in the individual uh, servers. Each host has the ability to re rebuild locally through a layer of erasure coding. And then you put another layer of erasure coding across the whole cluster. So you, with those two layers, uh, you're nines of uptime. That's how people measure the sort of the resiliency, the durability of a storage system and good standard uptime is around five nines. That's 99.999% uh, uptime. But when you combine two layers of this uh, erasure coding protection, uh, you end up with 14 nines of uptime, which amounts to some number of, you know, like microseconds per year, right? Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's critical for large clouds, cloud service providers, and kind of any organization that's dealing with data north of, of 10 petabytes. Uh, but that we're doing that with Seagate because they have a box called a core vault that does that in hardware and then Quantastore does it in software. And we've integrated those two components together. So Quantastore now can pull the, the core vault units into the grid and kind of really helps customer, you know, customers do what the public cloud providers do. So if you want to deploy object storage like Amazon does it, we now have the ability to bring that to uh, other cloud service providers and large, large organizations that need to need need to have that. Yeah. Awesome. That, that's super cool technology. And I'm glad that you guys are still innovating uh, on that front as well. And so one last and final uh, question for you, and, and it's a short one. So maybe a short response here. If you're if you're using chat GPT, what, what are you using it for? Uh, 
I, I've just been testing it out. I went and tested it out to help write some documentation. Um, the, in fact, we just talked about erasure coding. I asked it, what's the difference between RAID and erasure coding? And it gave a really good answer. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was, I was pretty impressed okay. with its ability to do some basic things. But I've also tested it out with things like uh, knowledge of our command line utility. And I said, hey, write me a script that does you know this using our command line utility. And it totally fell mm -hmm. down. So I think mm -hmm. it's, it's got some utility here and there. I think it's one of those technologies where it's got a glimmer of like what's to come and how helpful it'll be in the future. But it's still, I, I think it's a party trick uh, right now, but I, I think it's gonna rapidly become super integral to everything we do. And was that the paid version or the free version where you tried to get it to write a script? I just went to the, I created an account at OpenAI and okay. tried it out. So yeah, it was the free yeah, version. Free, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I haven't met anyone who, who actually has the premier version where they're paying for it because I heard that there's some pretty cool things like and I just read something around like the plugin mm. that is available. Like there's a wait list for the plugin and people are gathering their own data sets and large language models and they're bringing it into their own environments That's where and closing it off to their environment and setting up their own GPTs, yeah. right? And uh, generative AI models and using that and integrating that into their own different platforms and products and services, et cetera. So we, we're in for a, uh, a ride, right? It's a, it's a quantum ride that we're on right now uh, since AI has been let loose. Yeah. It's, um, it goes back to my LinkedIn article where I, I wrote about Dr. Will Caster. Mm. And there was a movie, and a movie. And, and it, the name escapes me, but this guy was a super smart professor. He died, right? But he was so he was so smart that he took his intelligence and his soul and all of that other, other stuff and uploaded it into a computer. Okay. And his and his wife knew he was doing this because that was part of his his life and his research and his expertise. Yeah. And so she connected it up back into the system and spun it up and he came back to life within a computer system. D did you see this? I didn't see this. No, this rings a bell, like maybe uh, some sci-fi that I, I had read a long time ago, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it got, it got, it got really creepy and he, he literally, he got access to the internet and once he got access to the internet, he became like God. Okay. <laughs> and I mean, well, this sounds a little bit like, Lucy, remember the, the movie yeah. with the... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. And yeah, he started tapping into the power grid. I mean, he was expanding himself where he, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to keep spoiling it for people, but it's a super old movie and it's just one that, that I always kind of kept in the back of my head. Like, wow, AI can really be for good or it can be for evil. It, it just depends on, you know, who's you using it. Um, so I think, I, I think of it like a calculator, you know, it's like, would, would you take calculators away from mathematicians? Definitely not. And this is sort of a calculator for everybody. So I just look at it like we all need to, you know, start, start uh, embracing it because I think we're going to be better for it all. I think it just has huge promise in terms of just everything from medical research to coming up with great new songs. You know, it's just, uh, 
I've been, this last week, I've been listening to so much George Benson. My wife is giving me crap about it. And I, but, you know, it's like, wouldn't it be neat if you could have an AI that could like help you, you know, create a new give me the night or something like that. And and eventually it will, you know, it'll help those artists that are in that genre go and say, hey, help take, take this thing I just created and help me build something like that. And, uh, and we're going to have so much cool stuff that comes out of it. So I, I'm, I'm a big optimist at it. I think we have to go into it with your eyes wide open, but it's going to be cool. Yeah, I just Googled it really quick. It's, it's Transcendence. Yeah. Transcendence with Johnny Depp. Okay, I'll Man, check it out. I haven't seen that I'm one. I'm telling you. It, yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe we can talk offline. There, there's, a, there's another one that I just uh, like a, an anime uh, Japanese anime, like yeah. cartoonish type of um, uh, show as well that goes into like, it takes you to the year 2112. Huh. And AI is huge. And there's always a system that's capturing everything. There's a lot of surveillance. I mean, it's, yeah. it's crazy. Well, uh, but yeah, let, let's go ahead and wrap up. So Steve, thank you again for providing your insights and also your expertise around object storage, tape storage, cost, security, and, you know, capturing data and being able to uh, make sure that that data is, is, is accessible and it's also resilient as well. And so one final thing, please go out to LinkedIn. If you're not a part of the backup and recovery professionals group, there's over 25,000 professionals in that group. I manage it, of course. I run it. I created it. A great place to have these types of conversation. So please go out and sign up for the group as well. And any final thoughts, Steve? No, thanks again for having me on, uh, Demetrius. A uh, real pleasure. I, it's always uh, a great time hanging out with you. Well, awesome. Thank you again for, for being a guest on the show. And those out there, make sure that you back up often and you stay secure. All right.